Hey everybody, welcome to episode 412 of the podcast that goes snicked. Snicked! I'm your host, Jason. Mojo Summer Rerun is venable. And it's a flashback episode, Mojo Vision 92, plus bonus channels. <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm going to cover some stuff, some, some shitter chat, and some other mojo stuff, and then some other stuff that kind of goes the meat of the sandwich between um, the stuff we covered last time and some big events. Some some big events that kick off in the summer of 92. Because um, we're there. We're, we're knocking on the door of both Infinity War and Executioner's Song. And so this episode, we want to, you know, I talked about on Twitter, if you follow me there, uh, the three events they kind of all crash into summer of 92, or, you know, summer of fall, 92. Um, we have the Shitter Shot annual crossover, um, and, you know, between the X-Books, so the, the summer annuals that focus on Mojo World, and then we have Infinity War, which is a Marvel-wide crossover that features some X-Men, but a lot of Wolverine in particular. You know, because we're we're at height of uh, Wolverine overindulgence by this point, or at least getting there. Uh, maybe maybe still on the upward trajectory, but almost to the plateau. Um, and then, uh, of course, the the summer X Men crossover, not in the annuals, but just across the books, is Executioner's Song. Um, a whopping twelve parts on that. So. Yeah, a lot to, to kind of talk about and cram in before we can really start moving from 1992 to 1993. And so we have a lot of comics to talk about on this episode. But before we get into what we're going to talk about, I need to, to mention a couple of things that we're not going to talk about. Because I did not have a good way to find them and the ways I could find them or a little bit cost prohibitive, at least for what I felt like. You know, maybe not cost prohibitive, but opportunity cost prohibitive for those of you who like econ, econ, talking about econ, econ. Um, which, if you didn't go to my high school, that may or may not mean anything to you. I don't know how widespread that video was, but when I was in high school in the 90s, and we took economics, uh, AP economics, as a senior, there was this crazy-ass, like, music video about economics. It was like, it was like, um, <laughs> another reference that you may or may not get. There was also in the late 80s, so think Super Bowl Shuffle. There was a local car dealership in North Texas. I, I believe they were more than just Dallas, but I can't say that for sure. I think they had, I think they kind of went around the state. But it was Trophy Nissan. And um, I, one of the things I remember, remember most is they had a commercial that was like a, a, a soft rap. We'll call it, we'll call it soft hip-hop. Um, if they're, if they're softcore porn, this was softcore hip-hop. Um, and it was just really... They were like, Trophy, Trophy, Trophy Nissan. And I remember one... <laughs> It was actually probably fairly progressive, but it sounded so stupid. Because there was a line where they're like, Trophy, 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 Nissan. You can buy them from a lady. You can buy them from a guy. Which, you know, probably in 
mid to late 80s, that probably was a big deal that they had like a a fleet of female car salesmen in a mostly male-dominated profession. So, I mean, but the rap was still stupid. <laughs> anyway, I don't, let's try to correct the rabbit trail a little bit. So, back to economics, when I was, I don't know when this video was made. We watched it in 1995 or 1996. I don't remember if I did economics or government first or second. So, it was either 95 or 96. Um, but the video could have been much older. I have no idea. You know, like when you go to, to driver's ed or defensive driving, some of those videos are like still from the 70s. <laughs> this could have been one of those scenarios, but there was a, a really stupid rap about economics, and the guy was like, econ, econ, opportunity cost, opportunity cost. <laughs> anyway, some very fond memories of some very stupid things going on right now. Um, and see, that's why nostalgia can be funny, but it doesn't mean you want to repeat it. <laughs> Comic book writers. <laughs> lesson lesson to learn. Um, anyway, all I have to say, there's some things I'm not going to talk about because I didn't feel like they were worth what I would have to do to get the content. Um, one of those things is there was a 1992 or maybe 93 uh, Toys R Us exclusive X-Men comic where I couldn't really find any good like summaries. Looking at the cover, it looks like... Professor X, like, is sitting inside the head of a sentinel. He's, like, driving a sentinel and either fighting the X-Men or doing that in the danger room. Or I mean, I don't know. Like I said, I couldn't find a good synopsis. So, if any of you have read that or have that and want to, like, report in on it, like, you know, give a little, like, few sentences about what it's about, you know, talk about the art, you know, give it a claw rating, like, out of six claws, I would, I would gladly read that on the air, our next, on the air, on the podcast, our next uh, flashback episode. I mean, I would happily do that. I'm definitely interested to know what it's kind of about. And, and again, it's not it's not cost prohibitive. I think I was able to find a couple of copies for around 10 bucks on eBay. I just didn't think it was be a good return on my money. <laughs> just, just to be a completist. Um, so I, I let that one slide. Um, the other thing, and I talked about this a little bit previously, is I was able to grab some of the annuals and talk about them. But what I was looking at kind of the disbursement of books in 1992 and a little bit of 93 uh, for the Marvel UK stuff, where the X-Men are very have some very prominent guest spots, I think in an attempt to help sell books over there, right? Um, I think it was more of how can we sell more copies of Death Angels than it was introducing the X-Men or trying to get UK fans to buy the X-Men. Dan or, or, or Jack or anyone, y'all can correct me or any other of my UK friends. Um, if it was not easy to get X-Books and you didn't really know about them before the cartoon, then maybe it was a way to, to get readers to invest in the X-Men. But Anyway, I was able to find a lot of these books on eBay, and I just, again, it's not that they were super expensive, but they weren't cheap. They were not cheap. It wasn't like dollar bin stuff. But anyway, I just, I just decided, looking at the list of what all I would have to try to get 
to do all of these and also like well why do some and not all at this point right for these purposes um just decided i really couldn't do it so if you read like death's head 2 or death's angels or genetics i think it was called um you know warheads sorry i think i said death's angels i meant hell's angels it may change i don't remember but Anyway, if you have a fondness for that, or if you've read it, and like I said, you want to report in, I will gladly uh, take that information and share it with the, uh, the rest of the listeners. Um, I would be happy to do that. Um, you know, John Wilson, who's of, of Make Ours Marvel fame and all the pouches and uh, the Transformers TFUK podcast and, oh gosh, everything else that he does with guest spots and, and all that fun stuff, and has been on this show a number of times. He had read it and told me it wasn't really worth the time. <laughs> that a lot of the art's really ugly and this and the stories don't really matter that much. Like as as a Wolverine slash X Men fan, they're kind of throwaway. So um, that didn't really motivate me to shell out the bucks. <laughs> but um, yeah. So anyway, that's that. And you know, kind of what I've understood about those books too is that. They are 100% in continuity, but they're not important to continuity. So, you know, you definitely can put them in the reading order, right? And they, they fit. There's a place they go, but it doesn't really matter. There's no impact really to, especially to our characters, right? Not not going to say that, that, that Hell's Angels or the Warheads were not impacted by the stories. I'm sure they were. But basically, you know... The X-Men went over there, did some stuff, probably while they were visiting Excalibur, which we're going to actually talk about this episode. Um, you know, did some stuff, came home, and, and then promptly forgot all about it. Maybe they got drunk and forgot it even happened. I don't know. Um, so anyway, those are the things that, that we're not going to talk about. I had, I had talked earlier, especially on the UK stuff, about maybe making an attempt. And I did. I did some good research on figure out, like, if I was going to get a hold of this content, how would I do it? And at the end, just decided that I didn't really want to. <laughs> I mean, I'll just be, be honest and transparent. I just, what I would have had to have done to get this and read it all and, and everything, it just wasn't wasn't worth it to me. So, if you vastly disagree with that, you know, I do, these books are awesome. You know, let me know. Like, let's talk about it, but... But as of right now, um, what I've heard and what I've read and what I've looked into as far as cost, it just didn't really make sense. So, that's that. Now, one more thing that I also want to talk about real fast. um, Because I meant to do this on the Halloween episode and it just slipped off. It wasn't in my notes the right way. My mistake, definitely. Um... Let me let me pull this up real fast. Cause there was a saber tooth appearance that is in a horror type book, right? But also there's actually a Halloween scene. So it wouldn't have made perfect sense to stick it with that stuff and I just I neglected it. So we're gonna talk about that real fast now. Um it's kinda weird where it is in the reading order because I I know I know Sabretooth's not dead, but that story um, with the uh, the guy, I already am forgetting his name, um, uh, the guy who is the mob boss connected to Weapon X, 
when he went, you know, cyborg, like side talent or psycho uh, borg, um, psychic borg, more like. You know, the impression we got was that when he turned into the cocoon and swallowed Sabretooth, the Sabretooth was gone when he was gone. Now, we know he's about to pop back up in a Wolverine solo story, so it doesn't really matter that this, this issue takes place here. It just seems a little weird because it's like, well, yeah, it's definitely not. Or, they may have a way to headcanon it until we get to that Wolverine story in a couple episodes. So, we'll talk about that when we get into it. Um... But first up is the Dark Hold. Uh, I think the subtitle. Let me zoom in. Is pages from the Book of Sin. Um, and the Dark Hold is a thing that that I've been reading about a little bit in my 70s read through. Um, it's you know it's kind of a book of ancient evils in the uh, the Agents of Shield TV show. Um, it's kind of this book that has all these lores and legends about all the kind of the horror and mystic corner of the Marvel Universe. Um, and so this is the 90s kind of recap. So it started off as, uh, you know, there's a, a 90s crossover with the, the Ghost Rider kind of corner of the universe, if you want to say, um, because Ghost Rider was super popular in the early 90s. And, and to the point that he ends up with three monthly books, if you count the fact that he's co-headlining Marvel Comics Presents with Wolverine, because he has Ghost Rider, Marvel Comics Presents, and then also Spirits of Vengeance, which is him and the original Ghost Rider, Johnny Blaze, um, coming together. Uh, which is also funny, because if you said, hey, who's the 90s Marvel hero with the long hair and the sunglasses and the sawed-off shotgun who rides a motorcycle, at least two of your options are Johnny Blaze and Nomad. <laughs> And they both kind of came back into stories at around the same time. Both pre-existing characters, right? Nomad was the uh, the 50s Bucky. And, of course, Johnny Blaze was the original Ghost Rider. But, uh, anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. Um, the Darkhold... Um, well, it is here. It is here. Because there was a, a crossover Rise of the Midnight Suns, which was kind of relaunching some horror books. So we had Ghost Rider that, that it started in. Then we had uh, the Spirits of Vengeance, which I just talked about. Then we uh, Morbius got a new solo title, and then Night Stalkers was a guy who was in the the Doctor Strange story at the time, uh, and some of the vampire stories that had happened, I think, like in '91. And then also from the '70s, Vam Dracula books. Uh, you know, the kind of the return to prominence of Blade. And then also um, Francis Drake, who was Dracula's like descendant, but it was also a vampire hunter. Um, so it's kind of it was kind of cool to see those characters come back because I am doing my 70s read through right now and I've been really enjoying the Dracula book, like way more than I ever thought I could. Um, it, especially when Gene Colan is drawing it, it's just lights out, phenomenal. Um, but I've you know really come to enjoy Blade and Francis Drake in that book, so. I was hoping that Night Stalker's book would be really good. It wasn't great. But, anyway, the other new title that launched from that crossover was the Starkhold book. And it was definitely the weak link of the crossover. Had kind of the least to do with the story. Um, and there's this Montessa character, and um, she's a descendant and has, has access to this book, and people are trying to get the pages and stuff like that. 
that's kind of what this book is about. So, Sabretooth is in Dark Hole number three and four. Uh, number three is written by Chris Cooper with pencils by Tony Harris. Inks by Jimmy Palmiotti. Hey, that's a name that's still going strong. Uh, letters by Phil Felix and colors by Glennis Oliver. And then on, this is No Place Like It on Earth. On the cover, we have a pale creature with a window's peak. So, Eddie Munster. Um, and he's got glowing hands and he's reaching for our Montessi character and her British detective partner, whose name I can't recall right this second. Um, it's not a very good cover. I don't really particularly enjoy it. Um, art's not that great. Um, kind of boring. Anyway, Sabretooth shows up on the last page. That's really all I'm going to say about this one, because I really don't... I'm not caring for this book. It's kind of like an anthology. Like there's a character who has these pages who kind of serves as like the MC of the book, but not really. I mean, because it is a story, a continuous story, but then it's also kind of not... It's, it's interesting. But, um, anyway, Sabretooth shows up on the last page. And I'm going to give Dark Hole number three one out of six claws. I really didn't like it. Um, but number four, let me pull this one up. So, this is Cry Nagari. And this one is written by Chris Cooper still. But the pencils are by Norman Felshi. Felshi? Uh, inks are by Mark McKenna, Andrew Papoy, and F and then Phil Felix does the letters. Uh, John Calise does the colors. Um, this cover, who I think is still Chris... No, it says somebody Case. I don't know who that is. But it's, it's actually funny, because it's this Montezzi character with a machine gun. But she has a headband... And knowing that Sabretooth's on the cover, and knowing what we've been reading in the Wolverine solo book, it kind of makes you look, look or think like it's Silver Fox. But it's not. It's Montessi. She she has the same outfit later in the book. But anyway, it's her and Sabretooth uh, clawing at some monsters. It's an okay cover. Better than the uh, number three. But, yeah. So, in this one, uh, Sabretooth uh, tracks down... Buchanan, that's the uh, the British guy, um, from the series to settle an old score. Bucky, or Buchanan's uh, professor, compatriot, shoots Sabretooth in the junk with a shotgun. Ouch! And they escape as demons show up. Uh, Sabretooth claws his way out and catches up to Buchanan, but in his weakened state, uh, Bucky convinces Creed to work together against the demons. So they save a school Halloween dance. There you go, Halloween, trick-or-treat. And figure out the demons are the Nagari uh, from an old Exodus story and also from that uh, Doctor Strange story we just covered. So another reason I should have done this last episode, or last flashback episode. Um, anyway, so they're Nagari and the interdimensional Cairn must be at the local stone quarry, right? Where else would it be? So they go there to the quarry, they, they fight demons, destroy the Cairn, and then Sabretooth is teleported away by the wizard who brought him there in the first place. So there's this wizard who had this master plan to get the Nagari Gate closed, and he wanted to use our characters in the Dark Hold book to do it, but they knew he would need help, so he teleported Sabretooth in, knowing he would... I don't know what, what his plan was. His plan, if his plan was to help, why would he 
California in a mortal enemy who, who wants to kill Buchanan. But, um, anyway, I don't know. My kind of headcanon is this guy's a wizard. And maybe he pulled Sabretooth from a different place in time and then sent him back. Because there's really, there's really actually no reason for Sabretooth to be in the story. I mean, other than to boost sales of the book. Right? Um, and the fact, I know a common, um, marketing implementation for Marvel in the 90s especially was new books sometimes in the first issue but usually especially by like issue 3, 4, 5 would have popular guest spots to try to solidify some crossover sales potential, right? Um, you know, Darkhawk had Spider-Man really early in the book. Um, you know, other books kind of similar. Ghost Rider having uh, you know, Punisher and and stuff early in the book to just kind of help say, hey, we know this book's going to be good, we hope, but just in case, or just to draw some attention. Um, you know, conversely, by the time Deathlock came out, Ghost Rider was super popular, so he's in the early issues. Punisher's in the early issues. Uh, other heroes come into the book. Um, you know, we talked about some Wolverine appearances in there, right? I mean, it wasn't necessarily a Wolverine crossover. He was in a cast of characters, but you get the point, right? So, so Sabretooth was there. It could have been really anyone. It didn't even have to be a guy with claws to cut through the demons. They could have just kind of shot their way through them with guns or whatever. But I think in an effort to to sell the book, and because, hey, this book's about some nasty character, Sabretooth's a nasty character. I mean, it's not, not a complete departure. It's just not really necessary. I will say, this art is definitely better than the first one. And while Glennis Oliver is my probably 70s, 80s, 90s colors of choice, and she did number three, the colors in this one are more interesting. Um, almost like a Mike Mignola color palette. No brighter. So that's not really right. He doesn't do, at least at that point, was not doing bright stuff. So, it's a little brighter. It's just a, it's an interesting color scheme. I like it. I like it even more than what Oliver did on issue three. Though I would say that's probably not a rule. Because <laughs> it's not as good as like what she's doing on X-Books or Excalibur, per se. But um, was better than what she did on Darkhold. Um, anyway, all that to say, I gave Darkhold number four two out of six claws. Still wasn't really good or enjoyable, but, but better than the first chapter, and and both of those are better than the first two issues, which I did read, uh, getting ready for this, and, you know, one of them, like I said, I read as part of Rise of the Night Suns, and I just read two, because why, why skip two if I'm going to read three and four? Well, I should have skipped two. <laughs> but, anyway, that's going to bring us to our main event of the episode, which is the summer annual crossover in the X-Books, uh, Shitter Shat. Um, or otherwise known as Shattershot, uh, which is going to go through, you know, really the four main X-Books. Excalibur was not included, which, you know, as wacky as that book was, and considering this is a Mojo story, and considering Excalibur has done Mojo stories already, kind of wonder why they got left out, but they did. So it's going to be X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, X-Factor, and X-Force will be the four books this runs through. And so we're going to start off with X-Men number one. Sorry, X-Men annual number one. And this is a sweet-ass sweet Jim Lee cover. It's just a team shot. 
But it's an action team shot, or at least a charging team shot. We have a Wolverine literally running, diving into the bottom right corner. Cyclops right behind him, fist pumped in the air. Optic visor with a sparkle of an optic blast about to come out. We have Beast behind him, Cyclops behind him as well. And then up in the air behind everyone is Rogue and Gambit. It's, it's a nice cover. It really looks good. Um, you know, the Wolverine and the Cyclops in particular in the foreground look really, really nice um, as they're kind of running towards the viewer. It's a, it's a really fun cover. So, we're going to mostly just talk about the main story. Then there's other things we'll probably mention a little bit. So, in the X-Men one, we have Shattershot, Part 1, The Swades of Destiny, written by Fabian Nicieza, Layouts by Jim Lee, and then an army of pencil, pencilers and inkers. So for pencils, we have P. Craig Russell, Brian Stelfreeze, Adam Hughes, Stuart Eminen, Dan Panogian, Greg Capullo, and Mark Teixeira. And then for the inkers, we have P. Craig Russell, Brian Stelfreeze, Joe Rubenstein, Harry Candelario, Dan Panogian, and Mark Teixeira. Then letters, we have Tom Orchakowski and Lois Buhas. And we also have a villain story as a backup that has Wolverine. That's going to be written by Dan Slott, penciled by Carl Outstater, uh, inks by Scott Williams and Brad Boncada, and letters by Richard Starkings with colors by Brad Boncada. And we have a lot of pinups that we'll, we'll maybe talk about as we get through there. But, um, so chapter one of Shooter Shat is uh, on Mojo World, Arise. I think you mean... Orize is French. Uh, anyway, uh, he had created a slave race for Mojo, but then had to change the heart and led a rebellion. It wasn't a very good rebellion, however, so he, he was getting captured. And right before getting captured by Mojo, Arise jumps to Earth. The X-Men pick him up as an alien mutant on Cerebro. The blue team goes to Afghanistan to retrieve him. But Mojo also sends a team to Earth to get him. So, of course, they fight. The X-Men win, but conversely, they get Mojo great ratings. Uh, one of the Mojo troops refers to Longshot as the Messiah. So Rogue and Wolverine start to pursue them through the portal, but Cyclops stops them, which does not make them happy. Um, yeah, so there's some really good artists in this kind of jam session book. I don't know if, if it's because they were trying to mimic Jim Lee's layouts or some of these guys they're just they're, they're really early in their career. Nothing really stands out about the art particularly to me in this book. In fact, of the four chapters it's probably the weakest artistically I thought. Um, that can be argued, right? It's not bad. It's just you see some of these names and you're like, whoa, this is going to be awesome. And then it's just not really awesome. <laughs> and that's, I guess that's the fault, right? And not being awesome. And there's worse things to, to be at fault for, I guess. Um, so anyway, some, some other kind of things in this story. So really enjoyed more Rogue and Gambit flirting. But Gambit's really kind of gross in this issue. And I guess you could argue some. <laughs> He's kind of gross in the, this early part of the relationship at times anyway, but especially 
And there's a, they start off in the danger ring right before they get the, the warning from Cerebro. They're, they're playing a game of, of team tag in the danger room and Rogue and Gambit are like crawling through this shaft, like a ventilation shaft. And basically Rogue, uh, Gambit's getting all grab ass, uh, which is gross enough by itself. But then Rogue just kind of shrugs it off. <laughs> like, you enjoying yourself, sugar? Which is, I mean, that's not really very good. Um, you know, she should have kicked his teeth in <laughs> for grabbing her butt. Um, and getting handsy in the tunnel and taking advantage of the confined spaces. You know, unless he has permission, but we don't get the impression that he did. Right? I don't think he said, hey, you want to make out or anything like that? I think he just was like, hey, I'm behind her. Her ass is right there. I'm going to grab it. And so, anyway, that's not really cool. And especially because I really like the rogue gambit relationship. So, I hate I hate when this kind of ugly stuff pops into it. <laughs> but, um, anyway, um, the other thing is, uh, Beast gets a good explanation of the X line in general, like the whole thing. Uh, let me find the pages here. Because he says, uh, what does he say here? And he's talking about, um, the bad guys show up in Afghanistan and they're like, they see the characters and they're like, it's the X, the X, X, X? And Beast is like, X-Men, X-Force, X-Factor? It all does get so confusing. And he's like, um, allow me to clarify the situation for you gentle beings. Factor does it with a modicum of humor. Force with an overabundance in testosterone. We, the X-Men, anyways, uh, or sorry, we, the men, anyways, of X, do it with a style and panache the others always try but fail to emulate. And I gotta say, <laughs> where I am on these books right now, I kind of agree with Beast. Uh, X Factor's funny and has that crazy, awesome Stroman art. Um, X Force is enjoyable, but definitely very, very bicep heavy. <laughs> um, and then, you know, the, the two X Men books are probably. You know, actually, though, so the eponymous X-Men book, to this point, really, really good. Um, Uncanny is not as strong as I remember it being. Um, it's still good. But I guess I guess maybe what I'm saying is when I talk about ranking the books, um, I would have said before I did all this, you know, from my memory, from the last time I read through these back in the early 2000s, I would have said, oh yeah, X-Men, Uncanny, uh, X-Force, X-Factor. You know, I'm kind of tied for third and fourth. Neither bad, but neither great. Um, now, I would say, I would still put X-Men at the top from where I am right now in 1992. But then X-Factor, with just how awesome the Strowman art is and, and having a little bit different perspective on how to read Peter Davis writing than I did when I was 13 and 14. Um, probably put that second. I mean, I guess we'll see because the art, artist is about to change where I am once we get to the Executioner song. Um, you know, Strowman is pretty much gone by that point. Um, so we'll see how, how it does after that. But um, Uncanny is not... It's not bad. It's still a good, solid book. But it's not as awesome as I remember it being. Or it doesn't... 
it doesn't stay as awesome at this period. Um, mostly because there is some pretty mediocre art at when Portacio is not there. Um, but anyway, that, that's really neither here nor there. And then X-Force, of course, had, had some really crappy art issues. But, you know, at this point, I'm about to get into the Capolo stuff, which I'm looking forward to, though. It was early. It takes them a little while, I think, to get really awesome. It's a breath of fresh air immediately. But I think it takes a little bit for him to just get, like, I'm a force of nature, which he will, you know, eventually be. Um, but yeah, so Beast explains the X-Men. Take that, Jay Miles. Just kidding. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, so, uh, I do like that Rogue and Wolverine are mad about Longshot. So, you know, they, they hear his name. They know there's a connection to these characters. That they, they want to figure out, well, where, where's our lost teammate? And they're trying to go through, run after the portal, into the portal after the bad guys, and Cyclops, like, blocks them with an optic blast, and the portal closes. And they get pretty upset. And Cyclops is like, no. My mission, my team, we wanted to come get this mutant that we saw in Cerebro and get him home safely with my whole team intact. Like, I want you all to come home with me. So that's what I'm doing. And they're like, well, yeah, but you don't, you don't know Longshot, but he was our teammate for a long time. We, we, need, we need to go find him, and, and you just took away our opportunity. So I, I really like it, because it's a really good inter-team conflict from both sides, right? Cyclops has a very good point. He doesn't really have time on this mission for his team to run off going excuse the pun, Rogue, um, to chase down something that may or may not be a legitimate thing. I mean, they didn't see Longshot. Just someone said his name and obviously perked up their ears for a good reason. But I understand Cyclops is like, no, we came here to do this. We need to take him home. I need all of you to stay together. You know, as a leader, it's my job to keep us together. And I get that. I also get Rogue and Wolverine you know, having not seen Longshot in a long time now, and hearing his name and going, oh, we miss that guy, we have some responsibility to that guy, we need to go find him, and then being angry when they're denied that opportunity, like, oh, that makes sense, it's all pretty cool. Um, so the other thing, um, that villain story, is it's not bad. It's basically Wolverine explaining like the top ten villains to Jubilee. Um and it's definitely weighted towards the time period. Um let's see if I can find it exactly. Um where is it? Gotta get through these pinups, which I'm gonna come back to because some of these are pretty cool. Um number ten, Mojo. Number nine, Reavers. Number eight, Sentinels. Number seven, Brood. Number six, The Upstarts. New hero or new villains from Uncanny. Um, number five, Omega Red, who's just been introduced in this book recently. Number four, Apocalypse. Number three, Mr. Sinister and the Marauders. We also have a Sabretooth appearance there. Uh, number two, Magneto and the Acolytes. And Jubilee's like, what? what? Magneto's number one. What are you talking about? And... I was kind of like the same way. I was like, what, what, what's going to be higher than Magneto? And the thing is, it's not a who, it's a what. And Wolverine describes 
hate and bigotry as the number one enemy to the X-Men, which I thought was really cool. Um, really enjoyed that overall. Uh, you know, the story is kind of like, oh, ho, oh, oh, you know, hey, Jubilee, let me, let me tell you a story about our bad guys. Um, that part's kind of silly. But number one being like prejudice, being the number one enemy, is so appropriate and so real life. I mean, that's, I mean, hatred, violence, that's the number one enemy to, to all of us, right? And so for Wolverine to be the person that kind of points that out, I thought was really, really cool, really interesting. Um, so some other bonus stuff in this annual. We have a, a layout of the X-Mansion, which I... You know, don't get as much into that now. I still like it, but I was a, such a sucker for that when I was a teenager. Um, you know, even like, oh, here are the restrooms and the locker rooms, and here's how the danger room fits in. It's underground, and and here's where it goes to the Morlock tunnels, and all that really cool stuff. Really, was really into that. So, um, some of the pinups in here. We have a Tom Grummet, Grummet pinup of Psylocke and Beast, which is cool. Uh, we have an Andy Kubert pinup of Gambit, Colossus, and Psylocke, which is pretty great. Uh, a Sam Keith Wolverine pinup, which is awesome. And then we have a Teixeira team pinup. I'm actually a little bit cross-team. And there, one, there was also more of it. And there's a silver leg going off panel. It looks like maybe this is a double-page spread, and we only got one page of it. Or he just wanted to have someone coming off panel. But he's got Beast, Cyclops, Rogue, Bishop, Jean Grey, and Gambit. And then Professor X is like eyes and the some green action lines in the background. This is a great pinup. It really rocks. Um, Beast looks amazing. And the color work, which I'm assuming he did his own, maybe. Or maybe not. But either way, because you have, like, kind of the, the faded colors of, of Texas normal palette, and then the bright to faded green in the background, and then this just stark, wide optic blast in red that cuts through across the top corner. It looks great. Everything about this pinup is amazing. Um, it looks really good. Um, some of the other pinups we have in here are a Greg Capullo, Rogue, and Psylocke one. That's fine. And then we get a diagram of the Blackbird. And we get a Summers Brother pinup Fighting Sentinels by Jeff Johnson. That's pretty cool. And then a Mike Mignola pinup of Mojo, which actually looks pretty great all things considered. Then Tom Rainey does one of the X-Men fighting Omega Red. That's uh, pretty cool. Got nice Wolverine front and center there. And then Jim Lee doing one of Rogue in her skimpy Savage Land outfit. Um, that's actually pretty good. She's on like a log and she's posing with the moon behind her. But her neck is like six inches long. Or maybe that's not that much. Let me see. One, two, three. Well, yeah, just the the front part of her neck is really, really long. <laughs> so, anyway, I, I'm assuming this is supposed to be really sexy. It's it's not bad. I don't know how sexy it is, but anyway. Um, that is X-Men Annual Number 1. Gosh. So, the, the Shitter Shot story is a, a 2 out of 6. If I'm looking at the whole annual, I think the pinups and the, the villain story are going to raise the content to 3 out of 6. 
uh, it would have been higher if Jim Lee had actually done the pencils or if, if any of these guys have been a little bit closer to their A game in their career. But as it is, um, I think I'll give X-Men annual number one, the whole package, three out of six claws. So that's going to take us next to Uncanny X-Men annual number 16, which has a nice J. Lee cover with a barbaric hero who looks like he's out of maybe Street Fighter or something. And then in the foreground we have Storm and Jean Grey passed out, Bishop yelling with his shotgun, and then Archangel wrapped in chains, making some some mean mug Jay Lee faces for sure. Um, Alright, so this is Shittershat Part 2, The Masters of Inevitability, written again by Fabian Nicieza. This time all the pencils by Jay Lee, inks by Jan Harps and Joe Rubenstein, or maybe Jan Harps, I don't know. Uh, letters by Tom Orchakowski and Lois Muhas, colors by Joe Rosas. And then Wolverine's in the backup story, Angel of Death, written by Chris Cooper, penciled by Jay Lee. Wow, Jay Lee did a lot in this book. Um, inks by Jan Harps, letters by Richard Starkings, and colors by Steve Buccioletto. Um, and there's some pen and stuff we'll talk about as well. So the cover's pretty nice. Um, in this story, at least in the main story, Mojo has a rival pirate network. So they also send a team to Earth to get Arise. But this time they fight the gold team. Because that's their book. Uh, the X-Men win. Um, the pirate team retreats home and Arise uh, leaves to the X-Men to explore the Earth. There you go. In the Angel of Death story, Archangel has a near-death experience, and then Cyclops, Beast, Gene, and Wolverine visit him in the hospital. There's really not much more to it than that. Um, so the art on this is pretty good. We're kind of in a transition period for Jay Lee. We haven't, you know, a guy who's made several, you know, in his career, made several artistic transitions. Um, you know, went from some early, like, MCP stories to be almost... Really not that much different than like a Marvel House artist. And then go to the very gritty, very stylized art of the early 90s that he does in um, X-Factor. You know, and then, you know, the, the Namor book that he draws with John Byrne uh, really heightens that style. And then, of course, that's the one he takes over to Image when he goes. And then, you know, he's kind of, since then, has also morphed into a very kind of combination, like shadows of the grit and the heavy inks, but in a more traditional style, but then also, also stylized in how minimalist it can be sometimes, um, which I, I really like his new stuff. Um, but this, this book in particular, kind of in between, kind of still fairly standard, but then also leaning into some of what, like, Protatio was doing at the time, and then Signs, it was really kind of wild, dark, inky stuff that he's about to get into, really, in just a few short months. Um, so it's kind of an interesting look into style evolving through this story, which is pretty cool. Um, I didn't really like the story, but visually, it's pretty interesting. Um, so there's that. It's pretty fun. And then this, uh, this this story of of Archangel is not very interesting or fun. It doesn't look that great. If I can get this, I forgot how big these pages are. 
So, uh, before we get to that, though, there's a pinup of Dale Keown with strong guy combing his one window tuft of hair and using Colossus, Colossus's armor as a mirror. That's pretty fun. Um, yeah, and the art, the art and the, the Jaylee art in the short story with Ar- Archangel is fine. Um, you know, we see, we see what looks like Mystique in Rogue's 80s outfit. Um, but it's like the angel of death and she visits Archangel slash angel to remind him of what he has to live for or whatever. Um, yeah, whatever. Um, we have a storm pinned up by P. Craig Russell where the logo of her name is more interesting than the art. Uh, then we have a bishop story that kind of recaps the sentiment that we got or actually, didn't we get or are we about to get? No, that we got in X-Men number 8. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of this recording in big chunks, so if I get lost, I apologize on when I did stuff. Um, but yeah, it kind of is that, that I'm, my methods don't really fit into this time. Uh, what can I do about that? Some kind of heart-to-heart talking, it's fine. Um, we have a Ron Friends and Tom Palmer pinup of Archangel, like standing... Uh, wing spread on the gargoyle so kind of like a Batman pose but instead of like crouching or leaning he's standing up really straight and his wings are outstretched and it looks pretty good and then we also have a Brandon Peterson pinup of Cannonball and Storm which is good and then we have a Joe Mad pinup of Colossus fighting the Brood and it's pretty good yeah but overall I think I'm going to give Uncanny X-Men Annual 16 uh, two, two out of six claws. Um, not really enjoying this the Shattershot story that much. Sorry, Shattershot um, story that much. And, you know, it's fine. Um, Alright, so X-Factor Annual number seven, which is part three of Shattershot, The Historians of Tales to Come. Uh, still written by Fabian, penciled by Joe Casada. Inks by Joe Rubenstein, letters by Richard Starkings, and colors by Kevin Tinsley. And our Wolverine appearance is basically, he's on like a video screen. <laughs> As we talk about different times, the X-Men have fought Mojo. Um, our cover is also by Quesada. And we have a giant Mojo in the background in shadow, and then green background, spiral jumping out of the logo, like there's a little teleportation burst in the logo, and then spiral jumping out, and our X-Factor team down below. I really like this cover. It's really good. Um, You know, Quesada's early 90s stuff, I'm a pretty big fan of, as far as I remember. And this is no exception. It's a really nice cover. And the art on the inside is, is pretty good, too. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. So, in this one, uh, Spiral finds Enrique, Val Cooper, and X Factor find Spiral because Val Cooper was looking for her after Freedom Force broke up. Uh, they fight. Um, they learn some mojo history, and Spiral takes Enrique home to try and find Shatterstar on Mojo World. Um, so that's it. There's, like I said, some good art. Story's not that good. I didn't think. At least, not for my taste. Alright, but we do have a really awesome Bill Sienkiewicz Quicksilver pinup. And then we have a, I guess, quote-unquote funny story of Al Cooper doing paperwork. 
didn't really enjoy it that much. Um, we have another Sienkiewicz pinup, a strong guy pounding a guy in the ground that's not quite as good as a Quicksilver one. Um, and then we have a Joe Mad backup of a, a Guido saving a kid from a bully, and then that kid turns into a bully, and Joe Ma or a uh, strong guy is like, I don't like that, son. Um, we have a Steve Lee Aloha pinup of Havoc and Wolf's Bay, which is pretty good. And that's that. So I'm going to give X Factor Annual 7, 2 out of 6 claws overall. Some of the pinups and stuff are cool, but I didn't really care for the issue that much. I'm not, if you can't tell, not a big fan of the story. Um, so Shinner Shot Part 4 is an X Force Annual number 1, which has a really nice Greg Capullo cover of Shatterstar. Doing a Lifeldian jump, but it's by Capullo, and it looks really good. Um, and then behind him are future X-Force, Cannonball, Sunspot, Magic, and Douglock, which will make more sense in a second, I guess. Um, this is Shittershot Part 4, The Mirror Liars, written by Fabian, penciled by Greg Capullo, inks by Harry Condelario, letters by Chris Eliopoulos, and colors by Mike Thomas. Um, in this story, basically... Ten years in the future, Shatterstar rules Mojo World. Uh, Arise's rebellion with Spiral worked, and Shatterstar took over. But now, Shatterstar, and we're told over and over again that he's just taking a page from Cable's leadership style, so sorry, Grant. <laughs> but apparently, if you're a protege of Cable, and you get a, any modicum of power, you completely abuse it. Because, um, uh, Shatterstar uh, subjugates the spineless ones. Um, so Arise returns to Earth, 10 years in the future, to enlist aid from future X-Force, which were some of the characters I just mentioned. Uh, they return to Mojo World to confront Shatterstar, who sees the error of his ways. Happy ending for everyone. And there's an X-Force history, which includes uh, Wolverine cameo in one of the other stories. Um, or maybe in that story. Yeah, another kind of Here's, here's some other things that happened in Mojo, and it includes the X-Men. So there's your Wolverine, you know, little tiny panel. Um, again, so all of these, these, the last three chapters all benefited from having a consistent artist. Um, the books flowed better. They were artists all turning in tough work. Uh, this Capullo issue is no exception. Um, it looks pretty good. Um... Again, just don't really like the story. Um, there is a, a pinup of X-Force by Capullo. The new, it's got Cable, Feral, Domino, Shatterstar, Cannonball, Warpath, and Boom Boom. So, so the lineup is current. Because um, Cable's not really in the story at all, other than referencing that, that he was a bad example. <laughs> really kind of all we get. Um... And it's funny because I think it's kind of, you know, Grant has talked about on the last couple of episodes of The Cable Guide how Fabian kind of takes the Bruce Willis, tough guy action star and starts to add layers to it after Liefeld leaves. But he does it organically, like it's not a switch. Like he does it like baby steps. And so I think this is an, another one of those baby steps that, um, even though it's not in the story, they reference him as kind of being a bad leader. Or, or being a very aggressive leader. Bad leader is probably an oversimplification. Um, being a very aggressive leader, and if you take the wrong lessons, it'll lead you down the wrong path. And kind of, but he's not a complete douche. So, 
it's just, it's interesting, kind of another another baby step towards where Fabian is going to take K1. Of course, he wrote this whole story. Um, let's see, what else is there? Um, there's a really cool Sinkevich, um feral pinup. That's really cool. I guess, or maybe it's Wolf's Bay because it's got like medieval type helmets, and she went to that that medieval type world. So maybe that's what it is, but it looks awesome either way. And then another kind of know your enemy type story where Cable um, mansplains all the X-Force bad guys. Um, that also includes Wolverine because the X-Men are at odds with X-Force, um, he says. He doesn't say they're an enemy, but definitely says they're at odds. Then we have a cool Adam Kubert pinup of Domino, Cannonball, Shatterstar, and Boom Boom. And then a Tom Rainey pinup of Boom Boom, Domino, and Feral. Um, but Domino and Boom Boom are a little bit too sexy. And Feral, who is usually too sexy because she's just a cat woman with huge boobs, actually looks pretty restrained and cool in this one. Um, but yeah, again, like there's some cool, there's some fun stuff, some cool art. I just, I don't know. I don't know what. A, I'm a very loudly proclaimed, self-professed, not a Mojo fan. So this is, this is going to be a tough episode for me in general, because <laughs> we're about to do another Mojo story in just a second. Um, I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't think he's written very well very often. In fact, I would say he's written poorly most often. And this whole idea of the revolution and, and blah blah blah, I just don't really care. To be honest, I mean, I just don't really care. That's what this all boils down to. So I'm going to give X-Force Annual number one an overall two out of six claws as well. With the story, the shitter shat as a whole, uh, definitely a two out of six claws event. Um, some pretty good art, especially in the last three chapters. Um, and Fabian's a writer I enjoy. I just don't really, I just couldn't get into it. I don't know. Couldn't get invested. So there's that. And maybe that's my own preconceptions, you know, about the character and the, the setting and, and all that. I mean, maybe this is doomed from the start. I don't know. I'm willing to admit my bias, um, but it's still mine, and there's no, no one here right now to challenge me. So, listeners, if you want to challenge me, that's welcome. I would love to have a different conversation about what you liked about this crossover if you really enjoyed it. So feel free to let me know. I won't um, won't look down on it or disparage it. I will welcome it and, and talk about it very openly and you know share it with the listeners. Because chances are, if you liked it, someone else listening also did. And you know welcome the diversity of opinion on that. So feel free to write in um, if you want to talk about what you liked about Shattershot. Alright, so warning, I has been given, we're going to talk about another Mojo story in X-Men 10 and 11, which will also be Jim Lee's departure, not only from X-Men, but from Marvel. Um, the last stuff he does before he goes on to do Wildcats and Image, which if you want to hear about all that, you know, I mentioned him earlier, but John Wilson has all the pouches, uh, an Image, Image Comics podcast, that's a very enjoyable show. And you can go listen to what Jim Lee's doing over there uh, as soon as he leaves this book. But we're going to start off with X-Men number 10. 
a Jim Lee joint with supporting cast featuring Scott Lobdell, Scott Williams, uh, Wyacek, Alstetter and Panosian, uh, Buhalis and Orchikowski. Um And so, yeah, uh, where little happy bluebirds flies is this chapter. Uh, so basically, Jim Lee did the art and the plotting. Lobdell helped with the script. Scott Williams did the inks with Wyacek, Alstetter and Panosian. Um, so he must have been busy, too, uh, working on Wildcats already, probably, why he wasn't able to ink as much of this. Um, which is too bad, because Williams and Lee are a team, a tour de force. It's good when they work together. Um, so Jim Lee and Williams do the cover. Actually, no, just Jim Lee does the cover. Williams is not in the autograph bubble. Um, and it's because you demanded it, though I didn't, the return to Longshot. And we have Mojo holding Longshot up, grabbing onto the X-Men logo. And in the back, the X-Men are in, like, um, negatives, like of a film reel. Or maybe it's not. It's in black and white, but it may just be a bunch of screens on a wall. And, of course, we have Wolverine's face and Cyclops' face and Cyclops' face and Jubilee and Rogue are sharing a face. No gambit on the cover that I can see. But... It's an okay cover. I mean, it's good, but, you know, in the Pantheon and Jim Lee covers, it's not. It's kind of middle of the road. Um, anyway, uh, so remember when we talked about that pirate programmer, Unseen, from uh, Shittershot? Uh, so to compete with that, uh, Mojo brings the X-Men to Mojoverse after seemingly killing Dazzler Mojo puts the X-Men in the Wizard of X. Mm-hmm. You heard that right. With Longshot. Um, the story is dumb and the art is great. I don't really know how else to say it. <laughs> I don't really want to talk about it very much, to be honest. Um, I kind of do, because it's the end of Jim Lee, and that's a big deal. Um, I just didn't... I don't know. I don't know. Just, I don't. I don't care for this. Uh, the, wiz- the the parody stuff's not as funny as Jim Lee and Scott Lobdell want it to be. Um, and yeah, I, I guess that's really all I, all I have to say. There's some really good art. Like some really good art. Um, especially uh, when Dazzler does her full light powers and Jim Lee kind of draws her almost translucent with color burst. Looks amazing. Um... You know, Gambit, Wolverine, and action always looks pretty good, especially by Jim Lee. Uh, you know, Jim Lee's Cyclops and Psylocke fighting look really good. Um, we also have this uh, Maverick backup story about the Xavier Files by uh, Scott Dobdell and Mark Teixeira. And the art's pretty good. The story's kind of pointless. Um, really, everything we need to know about the Xavier Files, we'll get when we get to that in the actual comic in the main story. Um, so don't really know the point of this backup besides just having some cool text art and, and giving a little bit of hype to the new character of Maverick. Um, I'm going to give X-Men number 10 two out of six claws. We're kind of on a roll with that, unfortunately. Um, X-Men number 11, the last Jim Lee issue of Marvel and X-Men. Um, yeah... Same same credits mostly, um, with the iconic 
X-Men cover that I had on a t-shirt. Um, Wolverine in the foreground with his hand up and his claws out in front of his face. We have Psylocke behind him. Then Gambit, Rogue, and Cyclops behind him. Then Jubilee with her face in her hand, right, wrestling in her hand at the front. And then Beast hanging upside down behind the X-Men logo. Um, very classic, iconic cover. It's a great cover. I really like it. I mean, it's just kind of Wolverine with some heads. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks really good. Um, I, I don't know really what else to say about it. But um, so so Dazzler is rescued by New Fifty Two Mojo. What I mean by that is Mojo Two, the sequel. But he's, he's totally like you know Jim Lee did all the costume designs for the DC New Fifty Two, and did some character redesigns. And what I what specifically this reminds me of, I don't know Jim Lee did this particular design. He did this. Oh, he did this design, maybe not that design. Um, the New 52 Lobo, who's like a hip, skinny, younger Lobo. So we have like a hip, skinny, younger Mojo. Um, and we're told that he was discarded from the clone farm because he was too thin um, and too weak. But he's got like a goatee and a handlebar mustache. He's like, cool Mojo, cool buff Mojo. Um, so that's why I call him New 52 Mojo. Um, Anyway, he rescues Dazzler. Uh, Professor X is able to mentally free the X-Men one by one. They fight back, and Longshot is able to kill Mojo. So, they don't really say, but I'm guessing Mojo 2 slash New 52 Mojo takes over, question mark. And then Xavier senses that Dazzler is preggers with Shatterstar. There's even a thing where Longshot and Dazzler are talking, and she's like, Shatterstar? I don't think so. <laughs> as far as the name of the baby. Um, and they're going to stay on Mojo World. So that, that puts Shatterstar where he needs to be for both his debut in New Mutants coming from Mojo World and then also for the future story where he eventually rules after the other revolution. Though, I don't, it doesn't really explain how we get from Mojo 2 back to Mojo. I think they did call the other bigger Mojo, like Mojo 5 or something, so, so I guess after Mojo 2, other normal-ish Mojos take over again, and that's who, who Shatterstar rebels against in the future. I don't, I don't really know. I've already spent more time thinking about that than I want to. Um, so the story's silly. The art's pretty great. Uh, we get the conclusion of the Maverick story in the back. Um... I will say one thing I want to mention for sure as we get into the end of this is Jim Lee's last page is a double-page spread of the X-Men. Um, and it's fantastic. It's, it's very much, an like you can tell, it's like a goodbye, right, to the characters. It gives a lot of care to them, puts them in, in kind of some strong poses as, as they pose at the end across these two pages. I mean, they're just kind of standing there, right? But they all look badass anyway. Uh, even Jubilee sitting down eating popcorn, drinking the soda, scowling at the camera. Looks great. Um, yeah. So sad to see Jubilee go. Um, I was thinking about just pencils. Not talking about like creators, but just pencils. Who's like the Mount Rushmore of Wolverine? And not even necessarily my favorites, but just like most impactful 
to the legacy of Wolverine visually. And I know not all these guys are maybe the best people still. Well, at least one in particular. But um, I'm not really going to worry about that right now. I'm just going to say, in my opinion, because we just lost two of these guys in the flashback episodes, like in the span of, of a couple episodes, uh, with Sylvester and Lee both leaving to do Image. And I'm going to put both of them on there. Um, they both define the character visually in a way that when I was a teenager thought was very similar. Now I can really see the differences between them. Um, you know, Jim Lee's kind of, I mean, now I don't necessarily say, it's, oh, that's super realistic. At the time, it felt really realistic and kind of classic comic. And I, I think it still is that, right? Very classic superhero. Um, very well-refined everybody's pretty, even the ugly people are pretty and look awesome. Um, you know, bombastic fighting, um, just really, really classic superhero art for the 90s and really defines how people still continue to draw Wolverine in a lot of ways. Um, you know, and Silvestri, uh, you know, the first guy to you know, really do the, well, with Frank Miller, the first to really introduce like the blade and claws and bring those into prominence. Um, and, you know, really defines how the character moves. Um, you know, definitely a more, more almost comic strippy, cartoony style. Um, more humor in the art. Like I said, I talked about this a lot when we did his last issue. So I won't go in that, into that too much. But I would put him on there. Really defined how people view Wolverine still, I think. Um, I think John Byrne has to go on there. Um, you know, really set the tone, you know, after taking over from Cochran, really says, this is who Wolverine is going to be pretty much forever. <laughs> In a lot of ways. Um, so undeniably, you know, one of the first to really lock in Wolverine's visual on in, in a very solidified, permanent basis. Um, and I think the fourth one, I thought about, you know, I mentioned Cochran and Miller. I think both of them are are towards the top of that. And there's some more modern artists who, who I might prefer now. And my sensibilities might lean more towards, but I wouldn't necessarily say they've had like a huge impact, at least not more, at least not to the point of eclipsing these guys. Um, but I think the, the fourth head, I'm going to make Adam Kubert. Um, very, very influential on how Wolverine looks and moves, and he's going to be on the book for a long time and keeps coming back for more. <laughs> and still, like, he kind of trademarks a lot of what Wolverine looks like now. So so I would love to hear everyone else's. Again, just, just at this point, strictly talking pencilers, who do you think are the four most influential pencilers in Wolverine's history. The four who made the biggest impact to the character. And maybe I'll maybe I'll think a little more and do my four favorites, because I'm not sure it's the same. But I think those are, these would be the four I would list as the most influential. Well, you know, John Byrne, Sylvester, Jim Lee, and Adam Kubert. I would love to hear some other opinions on that. So, please write in and let me know who your Mount Rushmore uh, Wolverine pencilers is. And I'll try to think a little bit too about my, who the writers might be. Obviously, 
you know, one of them. But who else? That's an inter I don't know if I can answer that right now. Okay. Well, I, that's our Mojo content. Now we have some bonus channels that we're going to get to. So, we're going to go ahead and cover X-Men number 12 and 13 about this hazard guy. Um, so, X-Men number 12 is going to be written by Fabian Nicieza. Art by Art T. Bear with uh, inking assist by Dan Panosian and Trevor Scott. Letters by Tom Orjakowski. Colors by Roses and Javins. And this is Broken Mirrors. On the cover by Art T. Bear, we have At the Mercy of Hazard, so we assume the bad guy is Hazard. And the X-Men lay below in defeat around him. And he's picking up Professor X by the neck. And is, I kind of love and kind of hate this cover all at the same time. And so, all the X-Men look pretty cool. Hazard looks pretty cool. Light T. Bear does a good job kind of basically aping Jim Lee the best he can, right? Um, and we know Professor X at this point is paralyzed. So I like that when Hazard like rips him out of the wheelchair, like he's almost like like just hanging. Like, you know, he can't move his legs. They're just kind of hanging. That part looks kind of cool. I've always thought, even when I was a teenager, thought the Professor X was like a broken toy. Like, I mean, it looks like Hazard has broke his neck and is pulling his head out of his body. Like, you expect to see some, like, spinal cord as, you know, being detached as he rips the head out. Um, that's always looked awkward to me. You know, even when I was a kid. I was like, this isn't quite right. Um, but, you know, that's where we are. Um, other than that, it's a pretty good cover. So... Um, in this one, we meet uh, Carter Reiking, a powerful mutant who has been sedated since childhood. Uh, back, at, back at Xavier's, Rogue and Gambit fort some more. Uh, Beast takes Psylocke to the airport to go home to England to visit Excalibur. While creepy Cyclops spies from the window with his photo of Jean. It's such a weird, awkward, creepy scene. Um, <laughs> he's like lusting after Psylocke from the window while he has a photo of Gene in his hands. And then, you know, kind of some storytelling portent. He gets a call from Xavier. He puts the photo on the desk, leaves the room, slams the door, and the photo falls off and breaks. And we see the broken photo. Though he didn't do it intentionally, it kind of kind of gives a, a foretaste of what might be coming in this burgeoning love triangle. Um, so anyway, uh, it's still creepy. <laughs> He is, it makes Cyclops to be such a perv. And maybe he is. I don't know. Um, anyway, Wolverine interrupts Jubilee's danger room session to confront Xavier about files on Daddy Xavier, which seem to be connected to Logan. Um, so then back in New Mexico, where Hazard is, news of his dad's death causes Carter to overpower his restraints and murder the staff. Back at Xavier's again that night, Wolverine apologizes for being gruff and invading Professor Rex's privacy. He's just trying to find out about his past. Um, and Xavier comes clean, says, I understand. Says he got the files a few weeks ago, but he hasn't brought them up because he hasn't been able to validate anything in them. He doesn't know where they came from. He doesn't know if they're accurate. 
and didn't want to send Wolverine off on a wild goose chase or give him bad information. Um, so he hasn't been able to determine if they're legit. But then he sees Reichling's death on the news while they're talking about it. And the files also pretend that uh, Daddy Xavier had a secret genetic job, that the nuclear scientist job was a cover. He was really doing genetics work and might connect to Weapon X in some way. So that's why Wolverine's really concerned. And Xavier says, oh, well, Reichling was also at that facility. He just died. Maybe I can go to the funeral and, and dig up some information, right? So they all, all their parents work together at the Gordo uh, facility. So Xavier decides to go to the funeral, and which brings up memories of his childhood. Uh, Carter, which, by the way, I don't, I was trying to remember, I don't know if they actually ever referred to him as Hazard other than the cover. But anyway, Carter attacks the funeral, angry at his dad for abandoning him. Um, but Carter and Xavier recognize each other, having grown up together. So Carter takes Xavier and heads to Alamogordo to find answers. The incident makes the news, so the X-Men see it. Unfortunately, Val Cooper also sees it. She calls the X-Men and volunteers to send X-Factor to check it out. But the X-Men say, nah, we got it. So, overall, again, I think T-Bear doing his best to impersonate Jim Lee <laughs> a little bit. And if not, at least his art is kind of a cross between Jim Lee and, and maybe like Andy Kubert. Not as much, you know, I, I had mentioned before, I thought he was one of the better inkers on Liefeld. There's really not a whole lot that looks like Liefeld here at all. Um, and definitely looks like Jim Lee, Andy Kubert, that kind of style. Um, but it's pretty good. I mean, visually, it's pretty appealing. I know he has turned out to be something... Of a, of a less desirable personality. Um, but this art is, is pretty good. Actually, quite good in a lot of places. Um, and the story was really fun. Um, really good. Lots of, like, interest and intrigue. About, and these are those Xavier files that uh, the Maverick backup story was talking about. And like I said, here we are, we have them. I mean, I guess we can assume... Well, no, we can't. I thought maybe maybe Maverick, like Mysterious, we drop them off, and we find out next issue that Carter actually sent them to Xavier. Um, maybe Maverick gave them to Carter, or gave... Riking did come up in that backup story, so maybe he gave them to Riking, and then Carter somehow got them and sent them to Xavier, and then went and attacked the funeral. Like, it's hard to make that really line up, uh, timeline-wise, so that's why I have trouble really caring about the backup story. <laughs> because <laughs> um, it doesn't really seem to matter. The files are here. Xavier and Logan have both seen them. They're both trying to figure out if, if uh, Xavier's dad had anything to do with Logan in his past, which is a very interesting connection. It brings up a lot of good, interesting conspiracy-type questions and really gets your mind jogging, you know, especially back then, not knowing how it's going to turn out. Um, so I'm going to give X-Men 12. Five out of six claws. Very Wolverine and Xavier-centric. It was a really good story. So X-Men 13, Hazardous Territory. Um, and I think the chapter is actually called Hazardous Territory, just like the cover says. Um, again, uh, pretty much same creative team. Uh, cover is pretty good. Um, it's all in green. 
we have hazard in the background and then what seemed to be like leading the way for him like clearing a path or cyclops beast gambit wolverine and rogue um and it all looks pretty good so in this one as carter leads xavier through the abandoned alamogordo facility the x-men arrive on the scene rogue flies wolverine uh in and offers her help getting a threatening snick for her troubles um they tr track Xavier to a sublevel. Cyclops, Gambit, and Beast find a secret passage that leads dun -dun -dun, to Carter having trapped their teammates. Sidebar, Rusty and Skid still an apocalypse blanket for Strife, who swears revenge on his historical hopping tormentor. Um, back at the base, Cyclops and Beast help Xavier while Wolverine, Rogue, and Gambit, who are somehow free from hazard suspension energy somehow. Anyway, uh, Gambit hits Carter. It doesn't go well. Cyclops blasts him inadvertently disabling his containment mechanisms. Um, so uh, Carter explodes. The suit was holding him in and um, Cyclops broke the suit so Carter blows up uh, wrecking the base but only shaking up the people somehow. Um, they decide there are no answers here, but they do miss a loose leaf of, of paper that ties uh, Dr. Reiking, Xavier, and Juggernaut's dad, Dr. Marco, to Shiva. So that's really interesting. Um, so, yeah, um, the Wolverine rogue scene... So Rogue flies Wolverine down, um, and Wolverine's like, just because my past been turned inside out lately, I find myself wanting to tear into things instead of thinking them through. Doesn't mean I need you to babysit me during a mission. And Rogue's like, good point. Heaven forbid you should require my shoulder to lean on for as many times as you offer me, offered yours to me. Now it's not the time to replace, girl. Logan, after everything we've been through, don't dismiss me like that. Stay calm, and we'll find our way through this mess, all of us, together. It's not that easy, darling, snicked. All my life I fought to keep the beast hidden inside the man. Now I'm finding out that maybe the man was a lie. Remember who you're talking to, sugar? The girl who observes other people's powers, the memories. Who knows more about living under the covers of lies more than me? Pulls in the claws, no snack. What a missed opportunity. All right, round yours. Let's find Charlie and get some answers together. <laughs> well, Reed very reluctantly is like, oh, you have a point. <laughs> I really like that, too, because, you know, Rogue doesn't really stay under Wolverine's wing, but in those early Uncanny issues where she, after she had joined the team, Wolverine's one of the first people to really trust her. And they have a couple of missions, just the two of them. And, you know, in the list of, of young female sidekicks that Wolverine kind of becomes Uncle Wolverine to, you know, for a little bit, a short period of time there, Rogue was wonderful. And so, for her to offer emotional support, I think is very sincere. And then for Wolverine to kind of be so rough with her about it, makes him kind of a bastard. I mean, you understand it. You just lost Mariko and Silver Fox, like in three issues worth of comics. <laughs> And so, it makes sense that he's kind of off level a little bit. And I like that Rogue calls him out on it, too. 
and says, you know, you're not the only person on the misery index. Like, we're all, we all got our problems, and we can still help each other. And he's like, fine. <laughs> I thought it was a really nice interaction. Um, no one really gets completely off the hook, and that, it feels real. It feels like real people arguing about a tough situation and not really resolving it, and I, I enjoyed that. Um, yeah, other than that, you know, like I said, um, you know, Strife gives us apocalypse blanket. Then there was a scene, so when, this is really odd. So Beast, Cyclops, and Gambit open the trap door, the secret passage, and they go in, and Xavier's laying on the ground. He's not in his chair, so he can't do anything by himself. And then uh, Carter has his energy, and up above him, suspended in the energy, a rogue and Wolverine. And we turn a couple of pages. We get the strife interlude. And then Rogue, Gambit, and Wolverine are attacking Carter. So I don't know if he put them down intentionally or unintentionally. There's really no explanation. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the art is really pretty good. Um, you know, I would say quite good throughout for the most part. Uh, Wolverine particularly looks really nice. Um, you get a nice Wolverine interrogation where he puts uh, puts his fist under Carter's chin and pops claws on either side of the face and says, start talking. But the X-Men are like, he knows nothing. There's nothing here. And he's like, fine. They, re- they just leave him there, which I thought was really weird because he's pretty dangerous. And they're just like, I guess he didn't really explode. He caused a really big explosion with his energy. Yeah, this doesn't make any sense. I guess is the is the um I don't know. Is the thing that like is energy built up and he blew up, so now it's not building up anymore? Because the suit's still broken. So not only is he a bad guy, technically speaking, he's at the very least he's a dangerous guy. And is his suit that keeps him stable is broken, and they just, Wolverine tosses him on the ground and they all leave. <laughs> like, I don't, don't really understand that part of it. Um, but yeah, Xavier's like, there's nothing here except the place where my father died in my memories. And then we see the paper, the Shiva scenario, with a footnote of Dr. Kurt Marco. Dr. Alexander Reiking, Dr. Brian Xavier. So, I don't remember how that connection plays out, or even if it plays out. I'm really interested to reread some of that and see where it goes. And so this book has been kind of chomping in the bit a little bit. It's kind of exciting to see what those past connections are to the Weapon X program, or at the very least to the Shiva scenario. Um... I'm going to have X-Men number 13, another 5 out of 6 claws. I don't think either of these are quite perfect, but they're both really good and really fun. Um, definitely better than all the stuff we just read. <laughs> uh, with the Mojo stuff. So, next up, we're going to talk about a few issues of Excalibur. So, I know we're we're starting to go kind of long, so I'll, I'll try to speed that. Really, uh, 12 or 13 of the X-Men were the, the two issues I wanted to talk about the most. So, these might go a little faster. Uh, we're going to talk about next, Excalibur number 52. Um, all you ever wanted to know about Phoenix, but were afraid to ask. 
Written by Alan Davis, Will Simpson does the breakdowns, Jimmy Jimmy Palmiotti and Dave Hoover do the finishes, Uh, Michael Heisler does the letters, Kelly Corvis does the colors, Um, and the cover is by Alan Davis and uh, Mark Farmer, or Dave Farmer, shoot, what's his name? Because they're a great combination, so I need to make sure I get it right. Yeah, Mark Farmer. I was right the first time. Uh, so on the cover, we have the X-Men finding Professor X and Jean Grey. So we have Wolverine cutting at him. I like Alan Davis during this period because Wolverine, the cow fins are not like flaps. They like attach to the front and the back of the head and make like these big like paper sailboats. <laughs> I kind of like it. Uh, maybe prefer Jim Lee and Mark Sylvester's like they're just kind of laughing in the wind, but, but Alan Davis does a, a thing with them that's pretty cool. Um, so a little bit of a telltale that maybe this is not what it seems. It's Mohawk Storm, Colossus, Wolverine, and his brown and orange, or brown and yellow, brown and gold, whatever you want to call it, costume, Nightcrawler, and Cyclops attacking Professor Xavier in his modern costume, which is the bomber jacket, the black Under Armour shirt, for back of a, lack of a better word, and the brown gloves, and his yellow floating wheelchair. And then Jean in her current 90s costume, shrugging her shoulders, saying, if this doesn't increase sales, nothing will. So it's a pretty great, pretty funny cover, and a string of really nice covers in Excalibur that are nice and fun. Um, so in this one, uh, basically Rachel is in a coma after defeating Necrom, which that was a really good story, by the way, a couple of issues ago. Um, and then Xavier and Jean come to England to check on her. They're able to talk to the Phoenix Force who gives a Phoenix history, a Jean Grey history, and a Rachel history. Then uh, the Phoenix caduces off to space, seemingly leaving Rachel still incapacitated. The art is okay. I really wish it would have been Alan Davis. And the story is like a big info dump. It's like a big visual Wikipedia page, um, you know, including our flashbacks of the X Men team with Wolverine, uh, which is why we're talking about it. Um, it's fine. Uh, subpar art. Interesting story, but we've we've heard it all and read it all before. Uh, it's really hard for me to rate issues like this because. The content they're talking about is good, but they don't do it in a very good way. So, I usually just kind of cheat and just give these a nondescript 3 out of 6 clause. That's what I'm going to do here as well. Alright, so then we're going to skip some issues that are good. Uh, There's a Spider-Man issue with Captain Britain that's a flashback. Then Alan Davis comes back for 54 and 55. Um, Oh, and 56 which is a fun story, definitely worth reading. But then we're going to go to Excalibur 57 and 58, which have our X-Men coming to Britain and meeting up with Excalibur for the first time. So nice reunions there. Um, Excalibur 57. For Whom the Bell Trolls. Uh, Alan Davis does the plot. Scott Lobdell does the script. Joe Majoria does the pencils. Joe Rubenstein does the inks. 
Ken Lopez does the letters and Kevin Tinsley does the colors. And the cover is by Joe Mad. And it's basically Joe Mad doing his best Art Adams impersonation. It's an all white background with a lot of characters running towards the camera. And it looks pretty good. But it's definitely like even Wolverine's pose and Nightcrawler's pose and Beast Mode, really all these poses are very much an homage to some of those Art Adams covers with the same white background and characters running towards, towards the camera. Doesn't mean it's bad. It looks great. But it's definitely a, uh, an homage. Alright. So Alchemy, who I don't think we've covered his story. He's in an old X-Factor story that, Art, funny enough, Art Adams drew. Um, and his ability is, you know, a mutant ability to turn stuff into other stuff. Uh, in that story, the trolls and use him to turn stuff into gold. They kidnapped his mom and kidnapped him so they could turn stuff to gold so they could be rich, rich, rich. Anyway, that was that X-Factor story. So anyway, back to this story. Alchemy, um, who's from that story, leaves Cyclops a voicemail asking for help. It seems the trolls have kidnapped his mom again to force his aid in their bid for world domination this time. Um... Escalibur is scouring the sewers and looking for evil Saturn 9 from the story that came right before this. But they find the trolls instead. Uh, during the inevitable melee, Alchemy turns Captain Britain and Megan to gold statues. Meanwhile, the X-Men Blue Team, having gotten Alchemy's message, fly to England to help him. Uh, they go to his house where Wolverine picks up some sense to track. And that leads them to the sewers where they bump into Excalibur and have a nice, if not brief, reunion. Cyclops says Alchemy is a friend, but Nightcrawler says no, he just dismantled my team almost single-handedly when he's helping the trolls fight us. Cyclops picks up the mental distress of Alchemy and his mom, giving some hint as to what might be going on. And um, the combined teams make their way into a giant troll door. Uh, Gambit charges the card and blows it up, but alas, Alchemy can turn the door into plastique, so everyone goes into a big bra-boom. So, art is fantastic. It's not, not Joe Maddens will come to know and love on the epic art he does on X-Men in a few years, but there's shadows of it here, and it's still really good nonetheless. Um, very vibrant, lots of good action, Lots of fun, very expressive uh, art in the body language and the facial expressions. Um, so definitely hints of, of the Joe Man will come to love. And it, it stands on its own as it is. Um, you know, I like the reunion, right? It's kind of terse. They disagree on how to handle the kid or who the kid might be. But they're very glad to see each other. Lots of hugs and, and you know, introductions to the new characters or who doesn't know who. Um... But then also, there's a nice tension as Cyclops just kind of assumes leadership of both teams. And Nightcrawler just very recently kind of officially become the Excalibur leader, you know, instead of Captain Britain. And he kind of doesn't appreciate kind of being like defaulted back to just other guy on the team. Um, but he also doesn't really stand up to it, at least not initially, and kind of just kind of falls in line, kind of falls into his old role of following Cyclops. Um, it's really kind of, in, not intense, a tense 
an interesting dynamic as the team go to fight the trolls. Um, so I really enjoyed the writing. Uh, really enjoyed the art. Um, I, you know what? I'll, I'll wait. I'll rate. I'll rate these together. So fifty-eight um, is, I believe, all the same stuff. Nope, there's some extra inks by Hector Colazzo on the last couple of pages. Other than that, it's the same. So our cover is X-Men No More in a dark, tiled room, and the X-Men are all in chains, and then Nightcrawler standing triumphant with an evil grin on his face, holding Cerise by the ponytail, and yeah, it looks like he has uh, turned traitor and defeated the X-Men. I guess he got tired of Cyclops and bossing him around. So, number 58. Uh, basically, uh, following the um, explosion, the trolls capture our mutants in mystical, unbreakable chains that also negate their powers. But Wolverine gets so mad... Uh, he breaks them anyway and attempts to kill the, the troll master bad guy, but Alchemy turns his claws to rubber, which is a pretty funny gag, very reminiscent of Affinity Gauntlet, where Thanos turns Wolverine to jelly. Um, but yeah, we get rubber claws that just kind of flop around. Um, a giant troll then knocks him out with a big old giant punch. Then Nightcrawler, seemingly betraying the X-Men, appeals to the troll, saying his appearance makes him an outcast even among friends, and expresses a desire to join the trolls and give all the humans their comeuppance. It makes sense to the trolls, so they let him go. To prove his loyalty, he goes and captures Cerise and Ferran, or Farron, who were had stayed behind in the tunnels trying to change Brian and Megan back with magic. Um, but then when he gets back, he says, Look what I did! I captured these guys! I turned on the X-Men, but also, I think I should lead y'all. I was a good leader for Excalibur for a few issues, and I think I would be a good leader of the trolls. And he challenges the dragon guy uh, for leadership. Then they have an amazing fight for several pages. Um, and as they're fighting, Ferron frees the, our other heroes from the chains with his magic powers. Kind of turns them into regular chains and unties them. Um... So now there's a big group fight, including Wolverine with his rubber claws, which is pretty funny. Uh, Nightcrawler eventually is able to get to Alchemy's mom with a vamp and freeze him. Or freeze her, I mean. And then so Alchemy feels like he doesn't have to help the trolls anymore. So he turns the boss dragon troll into gold. Um, and this immediately stops all the fighting. <laughs> this is not a Hydra scenario where he cut off one hand. And Tinmore takes his place. This is a cut the head off the snake scenario where they, they've turned the boss into gold and everyone's like, oh, nope, I'm done. We're good. So this stops all the fighting and Alchemy restores Brian and Megan to their human form. Then the X-Men and Excalibur promise to keep in touch and talk more. So, like all friends, when you promise to do that, you're probably not going to. <laughs> but we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. Um... So Excalibur takes the remaining trolls to the crazy Wonderland from a few issues ago, and they're very happy to go there. Uh, they, they fit in there, they can do what they want, and very, very happy. So again, the art 
it's not quite Jomab, but it's pretty great. It's getting there. The scenes, particularly of Nightcrawler fighting the Dragon Troll guy, are really good. Um, and the story's fun. And a good look into Nightcrawler as a leader. Um, and kind of the gamble he takes, but also, um, you know, it's just, it's really fun. So, I'm going to give both of these issues five out of six claws. Um, oh, wait, I did want to point out, there's a part where Wolverine goes berserk and jumps in with his rubber claws and can't really do much. But he still is able to fight pretty good, and so... Uh, the script says, aside from all that, he was still the best there is at what he did. Uh, the nice nod. But yeah, I'm really enjoying this Excalibur story. Um, you know, we're kind of in a good part of Excalibur again. So Excalibur, you have stuff to look forward to. Um, when Alan Davis comes back, and even though he didn't draw these issues, they're still really good. Um, so Excalibur 57 and 58, 5 out of 6 claws. Alright. So, then, the last couple of things we're going to talk about. Wolverine is in Avengers West Coast, 87 and 88. Uh, 87 is Peace Dividend. Written by Roy and Dan Thomas. Pencils by David Ross. Inks by Tom Nizan. Letters by Steve Detro. Colors by Bob Sharon. And the cover is by Dave Ross. Um, on the cover... We have a Wolverine in nothing but cargo pants and jumping at the reader, and Wonder Man and Scarlet Winch behind him. Uh, it's okay. Um, Alright, so basically, there's a Russian Fantastic Four. Uh, they take over a Canadian radar base with their master plan to start a new literal Cold War uh, by freezing the West with a new Ice Age. Um, Wolverine was just kind of hiking along on vacation and got too close, so he got captured by the Russian bad guys. Um, America sends U.S. agent to investigate. Um, his Avenger West teammates, Scarlet Witch and Wonder Man, follow him, and they get to the base just in time for Wolverine to break free. Uh, this art is not good, and for my notes on the story, I just wrote, nope. <laughs> I do not care for this. Um, 88. I believe it's the same team. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the second Cold War, it's called. Um, the cover says the ultimate Cold War. And it's Wolverine, and this time in nothing but ripped up cargo pants. He and U.S. agent fighting half of the Fantastic Four from Russia on a glacier. I mean, literally, these guys, they were all together. But the leader... It literally is Mr. Fantastic, but Russian, and was literally a cosmonaut who got hit with cosmic rays. The other three have different, equally uninteresting origins. Um, but they even, I think Wolverine even refers to them as the, uh, the Russian Fantastic Four. <laughs> so, um, anyway, in this issue, um, Wolverine and his West Coast Avengers saved the day. That's really all you need to know. I did not like this. Um, so there was a couple of cool things. Um, U.S. agent, who's very much a racist bigot at this point in history, keeps referring to Wolverine as Muni this, Muni that. And uh, Wolverine says, call me Muni again. I'll make you eat those dumb little wings, which I thought was fantastic. Um, also, for you Danger Room fans, um, there's a part on page 24... 
where he says, um, yeah, he talks about, he's fighting with the mental guys and zaps them with the wire. It says, can't have you mind futzing me, Mick. <laughs> so, so for all you futzer fans out there, um, Wolverine says he doesn't want to get mind futzed. So that's, that's pretty classic, pretty great. Um, the art was a little better. You know, I would say this whole story feels like a, one of the really lame Alpha Flight issues. I didn't really enjoy it at all. I'm going to give both these issues one out of six claws. Not a great way to end the episode, but there we are. And so, next up, I think will be, let me check my notes. We will continue our Antenna Swords coverage with the Excalibros. Um... But as far as what's going to happen next here will be Infinity War. And that will kind of probably be subsequent or at the same, not subsequent, sequent, <laughs> co-sequent maybe, uh, to the crossover we're going to do for Executioner's Song, which is fine. They all kind of came out at the same time. So I will probably do those episodes at the same time we're doing the Executioner's Crossover with um, the Cable Guide and Excaliburus. So all of that will be coming down the pipe real soon, and that's going to do it. So for this episode, um, as always, for the Wolverine Podcast and Ghost Knit, you can like the Facebook page. Twitter is at Snitcast. Show notes and stuff are at snitcast.podbean.com. Um, as I'm recording this, still no official results on the presidential election for all you Americans like me. Anxiously waiting to see how that turns out. And then, of course, uh, everyone everywhere with the pandemic, please continue to stay well and stay safe. And um, we'll see you on the flippy flop. So, until next time, hugs and snicks, everybody. Bye-bye. And snacked.